Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 209 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron, and I am thrilled you are here. Today, I get to talk with the amazing Matt Haig about his new book, The Midnight Library, which I fell head over heels in love with. Um, it is about books and libraries and the multiverse. It's got a little bit of everything and he writes with humor and kindness and I just love his work and it was delightful to talk to him. So that is coming up. You have that to look forward to. What is going on around here? Well, for the first time in many years, I am still ahead in NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. It is the 12th of November as I record this and I'm a couple thousand ahead. Uh, This doesn't happen doesn't happen to me. Usually by now, I am three or four days behind and I kind of do that whole giving up thing that I have talked about in the past saying, well, I can't get 6,000 words a day. I guess I lost nano. This month, though, I went into it with the intention of every day is a new day. Every day, 1667 words again. That's my goal. Um, I tend to write books quickly, but not Usually my books take about two to three months to write, not one month. Um, and right now, actually, I am taking two months to write a book. My goal is to be done by the end of December. However, I'm going to win NaNo on the way. That's one of my goalposts is winning NaNo with 50,000 words. And um, I, I honestly tried to remember, and I meant to pull it up, and then I forgot. I can't remember if I talked about my Alpha Smart last week. Um, but you know what? If I did, I can talk about it again. An Alpha Smart is basically just a keyboard. It is a keystroke emulator. So it's a it's a big plastic keyboard that looks like one of those, you know, TRS 80s that we had in the 80s. I guess I guess it was 80s, maybe early 90s. I can't remember. Um, that we would plonk on, and it looks like you should be printing it out on dot matrix paper. But what it does is you type on it. You can't do anything else. There's no internet. There's no nothing. You can just type and see four lines at once. It runs on AA batteries. It lasts forever. And then when you're done typing, whatever it is you're typing, you just hook it up to your computer and you hit send. And then it types it for you, kind of like a player piano. You get to watch your words unroll across the screen. And while it types quickly, it still takes, you know, five or 10 minutes to download what you're doing. So you got to walk away from your work and, and it feels good to walk back and say, how many words did I get? Oh my God, I got 2,400 words in an hour. That's fantastic. So, um, the Alpha Smart has been helping me immensely. I have set up a nano, uh, routine, which I haven't done in a long time. And it's a little bit new to me because the Alpha Smart is new to me. It's a Neo 2 for those of you curious. Uh, they don't make them anymore, but you can get them on eBay. Uh, I, go to my little desk right here, the desk that is not my work desk that I'm sitting at right now. It's just a uh, 90 degree turn from where I am, but I get to look out to the street. I light a candle. I put my headphones in. I listen to calm and soothing jazz. Do not mock me. It works. And I've been playing with this book. I've just been playing every day that I start to not enjoy the writing. I back up and I say, okay, what's fun? What is fun? How can I throw something into the mix here that goes along with her character arc, but uh, ups the stakes. 
I need more hijinks. I need more fun and surprise and excitement. And it's working. It's, I'm really, really having a good time playing with this book. So that has just been joyous. It's been a long time since I worked on a first draft. I've been revising for the last seven or eight months, I think, on um, a couple different books. So this is, this is fun. I'm enjoying this first draft. And I just wanted to share that with you. I hope that if you are doing nano, um, if you are behind, throw out the behind number. Today, you need to get 1,667 words. And tomorrow, 1,667 words. And if you're short at the end of nano, you can either say, oh my gosh, I have 40,000 words. I'm an amazing person. Or if you want to win, you can sit down and have a terrible day of writing terrible words and get 10 or 15,000 words. You can do that too. Um, me, if I miss it, I will just take that as a miss and, and a good number of words. But I don't think I'm going to miss it. I think I'm going to make it. Uh, nothing else really going on around here. So I will uh, stop this update. I'm just happy with how writing is going. And I hope that you are too. I hope that you come someplace and tell me all about it. And next week, I will do the drawing for the two books I talked about last week, um, giving away. If you would like to enter to win either of those two books, CJ Cook's The Nesting or Becca Symes' Dear Writer, You Need to Quit, you can go to rachelherron.com slash win and sign up there. So um, I'm extending that for a week. So happy writing. Come find me. Tell me how your writing is going. And thank you for listening. Please enjoy this interview. Hey, is resistance keeping you from writing? Are you looking for an actual writing community in which you can make goals and be held accountable for them? Join Rachel Says Write, a twice-weekly, two-hour writing session on Zoom. You can bop in and out of the writing room as your schedule needs, but for just $39 a month, you can write up to four hours a week with our wonderful little community, in which you'll actually get to know your writing peers. We write from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Tuesdays and 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Thursdays, and that's U.S. Pacific Standard Time. Go to rachelherron.com slash write to find out more. Well, I could not be more pleased today to welcome to the show, Matt Haig. Matt, hello. Hello, Rachel. Uh, thank I, you for having me. I am thrilled to have you. I loved this new book of yours. Loved it. Loved it. And I want to talk about that and your process of writing. But I want to give you a little introduction first. Matt Haig is the author of the internationally best-selling memoir, Reasons to Stay Alive and Notes on a Nervous Planet, along with six novels, including How to Stop Time and several award-winning children's books. His work has been translated into 30 languages, and his brand new book is The Midnight Library. I want to tell you a tiny bit of a story, Matt. For some reason, I, I got your book on NetGalley from our shared publisher and and then I just forgot about it. And I realized two days ago that we had this interview coming up and I thought, oh gosh, I, I better dip into that book. But it's a library, it's a book about libraries. And I just finished that beautiful book about libraries and I don't want to read another book about libraries. And I realized I'd accidentally read yours um, a uh. month ago when I first got it. And it had, it just seared into my brain. And for some reason I didn't put the title with your name together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so good. It's so fun. And I want to talk about this whole multiverse idea. But first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your process and how you get all this writing done? Where where, and when? Well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not really a writer with a very predictable routine. It really fluctuates. Uh, I have months of procrastination, trying to form ideas, um, writer's block, all of that stuff, staring at a blank 
Word documents and not getting anywhere. And then at the other end of the uh, scale, when I've got the idea, when I'm halfway through the novel, you know, seven days a week, all waking hours, I'll just be there just typing away. So it's kind of like a kind of bipolar existence of one extreme to the other. And um, I, you know, I sometimes think I need to have more of a sort of rigid routine, but I actually think it's kind of the only way I, I can work because I kind of need that period of procrastination and I'm feeling like I'm unproductive when I'm not actually unproductive. We're, we're so conditioned to think that unless we're actively doing or physically creating in that moment, yes. that it's kind of wasted time. And we sort of feel that in our lives generally, but certainly in our working lives. Uh, and to be a writer, um, I feel like, you know, so much of writing happens when you're not actually writing, when you're just sort of like walking or you're, you know, walking the dog or you're out with um, your friends or you're out in the garden or whatever you're doing. And um, yeah, I mean, so actually for me, when I'm actually stuck with my writing, I rather than just sort of plow through it, I, I, I feel like the, the best thing I can do is to just sort of step away and do something else and very often the biggest um breakthroughs within a novel or a story happen when you're not actually at your laptop when you're not in your word document writing away often when you're not thinking about it at all at all at all yeah just at all yeah it lands just on you full show. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. That's uh, yeah, the loveliest moment. I, I mean, it's lovely in one sense. It's frustrating that you can't auto, you can't ever, by definition, you can't um, create those moments. But what you can <laughs> exactly. do, you can switch off. And sometimes I feel like uh, I don't want to get too sort of pretentiously uh, psychological or philosophical. But I, I, I'm I'm a great fan of um, Jung. You know, rather than Freud, yes. I'm into Jung. Yes, and. Um, in 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 the red book which was only sort of like published this century because it's all his sort of scribblings from his sort of psychotic episode he he writes about um the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths being the sort of two sides of human nature by the spirit of the times he meant being sort of plugged into politics and what's happening in the world and the world around you and the external stuff and the spirit of the depths is the sort of deeper existential mm. human truth view and I feel like nowadays we're, we're so tilting towards um, the spirit of the times and we're so lost in the spirit of the times whether it's like the latest American presidential debate or whether it's <laughs> you know coronavirus or whatever catastrophe there's so much to distract us in, a, in this kind of hellscape that we, we we feel we're in, that we're fed through Twitter and rolling news and all of that. And uh, which, you know, we have to engage with. I'm not saying we don't have to engage with that. We obviously have to engage. We have to get angry. We have to get organised about the world and stuff. But at the same time, we shouldn't neglect another truth, which is the sort of inner truth of ourselves and the sort of what he called the spirit of the depths, which, you know, I'm quite into as an idea and he said he thought if you tilt too far one way or another you end up with neuroses and going a bit mad mm. and I feel like collectively we're so plugged into the spirit of the times so as a kind of collective madness is happening from all the world bs that we're we're surrounded by so yeah. then if you're how do you honor the spirit of the depths in yourself on a daily basis <sighs> if you're not actually actively deeply in a book well, books are one way uh, uh, to do it if you're reading a book, you know, actually sort of like to step back and, and sort of meditate. I feel like books 
now are probably more valuable than ever in terms of giving you that sort of meditative space um, where they're interactive in a very deep sense, but they're not interactive in the sense that you you feel obliged to give them a Facebook like. Or, <laughs> it is, it's what, really interesting that you say that, though. I, I agree completely, <laughs> and I've been reading some rather heady stuff lately, and and I find myself with a reaction when reading it that I need to do something with that information. I should probably highlight it. I should probably copy it onto a card. I should probably share it with yeah. someone. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Of, and I think that's the spirit of the times <laughs> affecting the spirit of the deep instead of just reading, taking in and thinking, you know, yes. the, 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 the yeah. spirit to move is so present. Yes, absolutely. And I, I hate that about myself. Yeah, like when I when I'm when I have a thought and I can't just let it be a thought and I'm trying to shape the thought into a tweet yes. in my head. Yes. Like there's oh, nothing. How, I have yeah. done this during yoga. I have done this during meditation. <laughs> I actually yeah. took myself off Twitter for about six months to see if I could break that thought cycle. It wasn't yeah. anything about the time I was spending. I wasn't spending too much time, but my brain forming tweets around my life was unacceptable. Yeah. And it actually did break it. Yeah. Oh, so, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm learning. I mean, what I'm doing now, uh, prompted by my partner, is to actually have um, like Sundays completely devoid of of screens, not TV screens. I watched like we watched um, with the kids. We watched some like it hot on Sunday, and we watched an old classic movie or something. Yeah. But to switch off from um, you know phones and laptops and emails, and and they're designed to be so. Um, addictive and to play with our sense of guilt I think like for instance like you know the fact that people can see when they've seen a message oh therefore you feel like you have to respond to that message or you're a bad person but to actually have that freedom to not get back to emails to not get back to text messages to just uh you know I I, and now I'm religious because I'm, I'm someone who finds balance hard unless I sort of like set a day in my calendar and say right I'm Sundays I don't do it at all you know because if I say I'll just do 20 minutes it ends up being two hours so if right. I just say right I'm, I'm not doing it at all I find that easier than just having 20 minutes in a day. I love that I want to try that someday <laughs> maybe not this week scroll step. free Sunday well I know <laughs> I know there's always a reason though isn't there? there's always a reason there's always, I know uh, there's always seems to be a the news seems to be getting exponentially bigger you know, it's always something. And I suppose like with you in California, you're thinking, well, I need to, I need to be plugged in because I need to be knowing about wildfires. I need to be knowing about this, that, and the other. Can I and open the windows today? Can I open the air? window? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Has the zombie apocalypse happened yet? Are we there? Um, yeah. So it, it is, it's, it's, it's an addictive kind of world we're in and we're all trying to make it better, but we all have the sense that maybe, maybe we're just contributing to, to it in our own way you know I never Twitter's the thing I'm really ambiguous about because I've spent so much time venting on Twitter venting about politics venting about personal life venting about mental health you always have the underlying suspicion that in trying to make it better are you actually making it better are you contributing to the noise divisiveness I don't know um so yeah more spirit of the depths that's what I'm trying more spirit of the depths amen amen what is your biggest challenge when it comes to writing um, biggest challenge. Well, I have uh, a lot. I think indecisiveness. I'm. I. I don't really get proper writer's block as such. I've always got something to write. I just don't know if it's any good or if that's the idea I should be choosing. So, I. I. I find my biggest challenge is having that 
barometer of knowing uh, this is the story I should be writing. So I'll have a lot of ideas in my head and they'll all obviously be a varying quality of varying interest if I wrote them. But I have, I, I'm quite bad in the initial stages of working out which is the one that's going to have legs, which is the one that's going to be the most interesting. And so I actually have to write quite a chunk of it and end up mm. often abandoning quite a lot of writing because until I've written it, I don't know. So I wish I was a bit better at that. So my, yeah, but challenging actually knowing what's going to resonate initially before writing. I think I'm quite good as it goes on. I'm quite sort of self-critical and I, 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 you know, that famous sort of bullshit detector. I'm quite good at knowing when things aren't working and I'm not shy to sort of scrap things or abandon things or chop a chapter I, I I'm not scared of you know I don't get too precious about it but it's just that that initial thing of having different ideas and knowing which direction to go at the start is uh, it takes me frustratingly long to get there as it did with the Midnight Library and my previous novel How to Stop Time it takes me a while to get into that. Mm. What is your biggest joy when it comes to writing then? Biggest joy actually is when you've got the idea and you're on the first draft and you are literally the only person um, who has read your work. And that is the thing, but that, that is pure writing to me. And that's the aspect of writing. It doesn't matter whether you've never have had a novel published in your life or whether you're Stephen King, that is writing. You know, that aspect, every writer has that. You know, the stuff outside it, the stuff to do with publication, that's a bit that fluctuates in degrees and that's where how popular you are or what your Goodreads ranking is and all of that. But the actual act of writing itself, I think you have to keep a love for that, for that first draft feeling when it's flowing well. Obviously, there's times where you just want to bang your head against the wall. It's frustrating. <laughs> but when you when you kind of when things are going right or when you surprise yourself like you've imagined something you you hadn't planned to imagine but you're just taking a, a left turn here or something I think I think that's the moment where it feels like a really sort of fun activity almost like a sport like you're sort of fishing and you're finding new stuff that you didn't have before you know I, I'm a bad editor in terms of when the editor's involved and when we get the notes in and I really respect my editor my editor's a very wise person and gives me good notes but I, I find that process, it feels really like work and it feels like you've got a job in that, that sense. But but there's moments in a, in a good first draft where it doesn't feel like work and you're sort of really enjoying it. And you almost can get into like a little trance state when you're lost in your own daydreams. And, and that's the stuff um, that always stays good. Uh, you know, you, you get, you know, a little bit, as, as you get a little bit more well-read and a bit more well-known, I think the neuroses sort of ramp up a little bit around publication and you think oh what, what they're going to say and oh that's amazing I'm going to get a New York Times book review but then you're just like well, what are they going to say it's going to be devastating and, and so all those <laughs> stupid things that shouldn't be problems which are privileges but but you turn them into problems and yeah but the actual the calming thing for me uh, and actually the way I cope with having a book come out and be um, criticized or not criticized or whatever it is the way I cope with that reaction which is it all unsettling even the good stuff is unsettling that's what that's what I've discovered about my mind I find even even praise can be unsettling because you get yep. too lost in that outer you know going back to the young you're too plugged into that outer. so the way to sort of calm and center yourself is to just sort of hide away and, and start writing something new I think hiding away in the writing is really wonderful and I feel like writers have this gift that we've been giving 
given during this pandemic that yeah. we do have a place to go and lose ourselves in a really, really deep way. Can you share a craft tip of any sort on writing? Craft tip. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah, right. Okay, craft tip. Well, um, this is possibly, you know, it's a very subjective craft tip, but I, it's one that I've kind. had. It's one, I am into um, breaking certain rules. Uh, and, and the rule, I, you know, there's a lot of unwritten rules because books look a certain way often. And, um, you know, in terms of like chapter lengths, a chapter length tends to be in the average novel, I don't know, between 10 and 20 pages. And, and, and that's sort of like a given. And I sometimes do that. But sometimes I like to actually um, see a book and the page as a visual thing, as well as something you just read. I'm quite a visual person. And I actually see it as a visual thing. So I, I actually kind of like short chapters. So what I did with my very first novel when it wasn't working, I it was about 12 chapters long. I broke it up into something like 120 chapters. I sort of scattered it and um, playing about with that and seeing certain paragraphs as, as sort of standout individual things um, really helped me understand what I'm doing. So I think my main craft tip is to kind of forget in some ways that books have been written before and you've got this story to tell with the English language and you're 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 forgetting in 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 some sense you're forgetting that other books exist and you're thinking how best do I tell this particular story and you forget about conventions in terms of how long chapters have to be or how long paragraphs have to be or how you and you you just communicate it and that's, that doesn't mean you have to be sort of like overly portentous or do something incredibly artistic or write poems halfway through the page or anything <laughs> like that it's just I think it can help clear the communication if you're if you're you know uniquely doing it as you or how you want to communicate it and so uh, and also it's a trick I think because we all like to feel that we're turning through the pages fast and the one psychological trick you you can make that happen if you've got a lot of white space in your book they are yeah. going like that they are turning the pages um very fast and it's a nice feeling because I, I I don't know about you but I don't like that feeling of um going to sleep halfway through a chapter or ending you know I like that feeling of finishing a chapter see and I'm and so, I'm, the, I'm the anomaly um, that I love to stop right when I'm really enjoying something I'll stop in the middle of a sentence during okay. the crisis of a book and put it down and say Ooh, I oh I can do that later no one okay. understands well that's like that's yeah no <laughs> I do I get that as well it's like um you know that Keats quote about the unkissed lips being yeah. you know, it's kind of like that moment of like to come <laughs> yes. uh, yeah I get that too I get that too but um I, I saw a program once I can't remember what it was but it talks about the difference in skyscrapers between New York and Chicago and it said that like in New York the, the skyscrapers are all sort of crammed up together in midtown it's very sort of cramped together whereas in Chicago the space around the skyscrapers and and because the space around the skyscrapers you, you actually pay more attention to the individual ah. structure of the skyscraper become more iconic so um i think maybe i'm into that because my dad's an architect or something but i like the idea of um a chapter being like that like you can create yeah. space around it visually and you actually are drawn more attention so you can take a line out of a chapter and you wouldn't notice it in a chapter but if you if you turn that line into its entire page on a page then you suddenly your attention is um drawn to that so i think there was a line somewhere in the book and I don't break up my books like that until the end but I sometimes think oh if 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 I if a line comes at a key moment I think 
I'll just turn that line and just put it on its own page. And then, um, yeah, so I do a lot of that stuff. But uh, yeah, it's that. not, it's not, it's definitely not right for every book. But for me, but for, for I, playing, I, yeah, yeah. I like being playful. I love that. I love that. What thing in your life affects your writing in a surprising way? Um, oh, okay. Um, well, the realization, I, I don't know if this is the right answer to this, but uh, one thing that, that changed for me as a writer is I used to have a writing room and then now I don't have a writing room. I li literally write on my sofa and write with my um, laptop and I actually think I write better and more productively. Now I don't have a writing room. And Why? I, Why is that? I don't know. And again, this is very subjective. This is very me. This is not the universal. I think it's because as soon as I have a writing room and it's an office and it feels like it's work, I go into work mode. And I feel like for creativity, it helps to be a bit in play mode. Mm. And uh, so if I'm on my sofa uh, and writing, I, I actually like that. And I'm also a writer who kind of likes a bit of background noise because I have um, tinnitus. So I have ringing in my ears all the time. So... It's not, it doesn't dog, it doesn't swamp my life or anything. There's lots of times I don't hear it, but if it's total silence, I'll be aware of ringing in my ears. So I've got conditioned to having um, background noise and we've got um, kids. So there's often a lot of background noise. But interestingly, when we um, bought our house here, I bought it because it had a shed in the garden. And I thought I was going to be like Roald Dahl, who Heck famously yeah. had, had a shed and we walk out to his writing shed. And that didn't happen and that wouldn't happen. And the trouble is in, in, in a cold rainy day when you just want to get up and be warm in your pajamas, you wouldn't go out to the shed. So um, <laughs> yeah, writing on the sofa has been the thing. I think, I think you can look at my books. Um, if you look at my early books that were written in a writing office versus the books that were written on the sofa, they're more enjoyable the ones that are written on the sofa because I was probably enjoying myself that's more, fascinating I, I wonder i wonder if you're if you're uber fans who have read every single thing you've ever written yeah, online like, but work out the ones, yeah the ones where i was in a sort of uncomfortable chair at the office. <laughs> well it's something i i massively song. changed i i massively i mean i've written i've written quite a few books and lots of them are seriously unread um books that no one no one really read um but my first three books what well, the first one did okay in the uk but then the second and third didn't do this well and they were so bleak. And it's so interesting um, because now if I'm criticized, as I sometimes get criticized by reviewers in the UK, they will always say the same thing. They'll say, oh, you know, it descends into sort of optimistic platitudes or it'll <laughs> become like a sort of like a Facebook wall. Of, they always say that same thing. And I, I, I'm not actually uniquely proud of that because, well, first and foremost, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a snob about inspirational quotes. If someone can say something in a simple way, even if it feels a bit cliched, a simple, clear expression to someone else that offers some comfort. Yes. I, don't, I, don't, I don't see what's wrong with that. But also, um, you know, I, 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 the writing that I'm ashamed of having written was when I was younger. And I thought that to be a writer, you kind of had to reflect the bleakness and pessimism of the world. And, you know, I, I literally wrote a book called The Possession of Mr. Cave, which got very well reviewed. No one read it at all, but reviewers read it and they really liked it because it was totally miserable. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and literally everyone died in it. It was, it was just like, terrible. <laughs> Don't read that book. And, um, 
anyway, uh, you know, and that had no optimism or no sort of happy platitudes, as they'd say. Um, and I, I reached a point, and I don't know what happened in my 30s, but I thought, if you're contributing something to the world, why be ashamed of putting some sort of hope inside it or some optimism inside it? I'm someone who, who genuinely, in my 20s, I nearly died because of pessimism because I was suicidally mm. depressed. And depression gave me pessimism. And that pessimism wasn't real. Yes, I know we live in a screwed up world. But the, the voice in my head that depression was giving me was like, oh, you will definitely be dead by the age of 25. Your partner will leave you. This will happen. Nothing good will happen. Da, 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 da. You know, that became like a sort of Fox News of the brain, which was just this beaming <laughs> with sort of <laughs> beaming with sort of terror cycle of, of stuff. And so, um, in, a, in a way, optimism was more authentic for me. Optimism was, and not only that, even if pessimism and optimism are equally inauthentic, only one of those things is useful, and that's optimism. <laughs> you know, you, pessimism is not psychologically useful. So optimism, you have, to, you have to have some hope. And so what I try and do now is take a pessimistic situation or a person in a bad place or a, a, a terrible situation like, like a, a suicidal woman between life and death or whatever, and try and then find the hope inside it and I think that's a bit more um useful and and, and I know it's a bit weird to talk about novels having a use but I, I I feel like you know why not offer something as a human communicating to another human that's I've got some so it's perfect perfect segue into the book will you please tell us a little bit about what the book is saying yes sure the midnight library is um a book about a woman between um life and death who finds herself in this infinite library and all the books on the shelves are different versions of her life if she had lived it a different way and she's someone who's full of regrets so one of the books is the book of regrets which reminds her of all the things and decisions she's made which she regrets so she now got a chance to undo those regrets and live in um a different try out these different existences with the help of a librarian um mrs elm this sort of godlike librarian and she gets to see if the grass really is greener in the life where she was an olympic medalist or the life where she was a rock star or a glaciologist or owns a vineyard or whatever so she she can see and some of those lives obviously the grass isn't greener some of those lives are perfectly fine but maybe not right for her and she has to work out the best way um to live and it is beautiful and one oh, thank you, wonderfully written and dragged me through. Generally, I start the books and then I only finish them if they drag me through and it just dragged me through beautifully. Uh, so what you're exploring in this book is really the idea of multiverses, right? Of yes. every choice that we do not take creates an infinite number of multiverses. Do you, do you believe in that? I, I do, actually. I think there's a good scientific basis for believing yeah. in that. There's a, a, a book by, I think he's American, uh, a guy called Brian Green, who wrote a book called The Hidden Reality about how all our um, current scientific thinking leads to the idea that there are multiverses. There might be different kinds of multiverses, like there's uh, un some people believe in universes beyond the universes and others believe that the multiverse is right inches away from us if we've just done a different thing um but yeah i i i i, I do but i also believe that we have the power to always enter a new universe within our own timeline yeah. simply by the things we do and i find that a very empowering thought because it can be a bit of a sort of depressing thought to think oh there's all these better lives out there but to actually realize you've got the power within your life to not necessarily become a billionaire or a rock star or whatever, but to actually, you know, suddenly within the same situation, within the same people in your life, to actually have a totally different 
outlook upon it. And I think that's very hopeful. What you did with your book too, in the framing of it, using the books as the device to display that, I thought was so approachable and understandable because I I often think about the multiverse and and get very confused and stop thinking and then pick up Twitter. But it it allowed me to think of it in another, in another way. It's an infinitely branching library and it's all hers. And I just want to say that I recommend it to anyone, especially anyone who likes books. Did you have uh, Mrs. Elm yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think Mrs. Elm is a bit of an amalgam, but I definitely had an English teacher who was a bit like Mrs. Elm-like, who who seriously got me into books as something that weren't just things that are there to be sort of worthwhile and do me good, but there is a a proper thrilling, life-enhancing entertainment medium, like cinema or whatever else it is. And yeah, she was one of those people. And um, my my grandmother, actually, my grandmother died when I was quite young, um, would would often take me uh, into the forest, uh, you know, finding things and she'd know all about the forest and she just seemed full of infinite wisdom so a bit of her in there mm. as well. I had a Mrs. Craig my my grade school librarian she taught me how to crochet uh, inside the library it was oh very wonderful. good yeah, well, I, I, lo- I love libraries as spaces that are more than just books you know they're yeah. sort of they're important as a space like our town center libraries they are spaces that don't just like us as a consumer but they like us for us you know and we don't have many of those spaces they're kind of like secular churches aren't they that aren't just about money and then we're not a wallet to them we are you know something beyond that and yeah I think one thing I think America does far better than Britain and Europe is value libraries. I think you you really play, you know, our libraries are being sort of decimated and underfunded and closing mm. down in the last sort of areas that where we need to be in our more deprived areas. It's very hard to find a library now. Whereas I feel like libraries certainly are still very much center of book culture in America. And that's something that's the center very- of the book culture, but they're also turning into a um a social safety net center as well as yeah as the social safety net is cut from other places, then we're forcing these librarians to, our our librarians must become social workers and mental health experts and and all of this. And so I 100% agree with you, but I wish we would also give some more money to, (laughs) (laughs) always more money to libraries. Always, I live in, you know, I mentioned in Oakland and our library system is amazing. And what I can do is I request the book I want I'm usually the first one to request it. And yeah. that means they buy it in the ebook and they send it to my Kindle and the author gets paid and I get to read it for free four days later. You know, it's, yeah. oh, it's the best ever. Yes. Ever. <laughs> Never that is good. That yeah. Yeah. And like certainly in our country, the debate around libraries was often says, well, the internet's made it irrelevant because we can access all this information oh, and we can't access books. What about the like, books? What about the books? What about that four-dimensional space that you can go into? And the fact that it, 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 it's a kind of thing that glues a community together, isn't it? You've got a library, you have hospitals, you have a church, but you have a library at the heart of it. And um, yeah, so, you know, we're not quite in the state um, America's in with leadership, but our, our, no, our but- leadership... Yeah, but we've had we've had over 10 years of a conservative government that have been yeah. not good for culture and communities at all, so... Yeah. I think if if we weren't if we were not collapsing over here, we'd be spending a lot of time commiserating with you. But yeah, <laughs> meantime we're trying you do, to you put do, out you fires. It. Uh, it's so American to be absolutely the best, even at <laughs> being the worst. You know it is. It's embarrassing. <laughs> all of it. All of it is embarrassing. <laughs> it's a, 
I know. Matt, so, so, I know so. Thank you so, so, so very much for doing this with me. I really appreciated talking to you. I really loved reading the book so much so that I forgot it was your book and I didn't want to read this other guy's book about libraries because it was yours. And then, <laughs> thank so you, I have Rachel. no need for any more library books. It, it was uh, beautiful. Highly that was a joy. And hope, hopefully in some post-COVID uh, happier future, um, I'll meet you in Oakland or San Francisco and we'll have an event and that'll be good. Absolutely. That would be wonderful. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Right. Take care. Cheers, Rachel. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends. <laughs>